Hello and welcome to the South Carolina Lead. I'm your host, Gavin Jackson, and this episode was recorded on September 3rd, 2021 from James Island. And it's our Labor Day edition of the pod. You may have noticed it's shorter. That's because we have just one section for you, and it's medical. I recently spoke with Dr. Melissa Nolan, who is a professor of epidemiology at the University of South Carolina Arnold School of Public Health. And she's also the co-lead for the Sampling and Testing Representative Outreach for Novel Coronavirus Guidance, also known as STRONG. STRONG is a research project which provides public health leaders and lawmakers with key information to make data-driven decisions and pandemic response efforts. We talk about her research's latest findings and also get her thoughts on all things pandemic. So take a listen. Dr. Nolan, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, Gavin. So we last spoke in March 2020. Do you remember that? You're like my last in-studio interview for this week in South Carolina. And that's like when things were just going off the rails. And now here we are more than a year later and things are kind of going off the rails in a different way. Hard to imagine life before just a few weeks ago, let alone 18 months ago. I mean, did you think it was going to end up like this? I mean, we weren't able to predict anything at that time, but did you think that this is where we would be at this point? You know, I don't think any of us thought it would get to this point. I think we all were under the assumption it would be similar to maybe H1N1 and that we would have one really bad respiratory year of infection, but it would somewhat die out after that. I think the big difference, particularly with Delta variant, is that the more people that get infected, the greater your chance of developing these resistant strains. And there's just so many more people infected with COVID-19 than there ever were with H1N1 or even any of the prior influences that resulted in pandemics. And that, I think, is really what's kind of fueled this continual series of infections. And so with any luck, we'll be able to get a handle on it so we don't have to deal with this next year. But it's mm-hmm. going to be hard to say. And you know, even in that sense, we still have H1N1 yeah. with us to this day. I mean, last year in the flu season, we detected several cases of the H1N1 influenza strain. So it's hopefully COVID will start to look a little bit different in the next couple of years, but I anticipate it will be with us for a long time to come. Yeah. I mean, that's what more and more people are saying and thinking, do you think that this will become kind of like the flu where we're going to be getting these booster shots every year to kind of stave off the newest mutation of this, this virus? Oh, that's an excellent question. I wish I had a crystal ball. Yeah, we want answers. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a really a really cool thing with influenza, there's a group out in Boston and over in UK. They're developing a universal influenza vaccine so that you wouldn't have to get a new one every year. And so with any luck, we'll have the same thing for COVID as well so that we wouldn't have to keep getting booster shots. But it's, nevertheless, it sounds like something that will be with us kind of like the flu, essentially, in, in, in some form. Yes, Unfortunately. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, to that end, kind of tell us about the current research that you're doing and what you've been finding uh, with with this research. So in a COVID-related aim, um, we have been partnering with DHEC, as well as Clemson, MUSC, and Prisma Health on a large collaborative public health initiative. So we've been randomly selecting people from across the state in different cohorts. Um, And we're in our fourth one right now. And so with that, the The value of the South Carolina strong kind of COVID initiative is that we get a more representative sample of all South Carolinians. So we're not just getting information on people that are seeking testing, but people that, you know, represent everyone. And so that way we could identify potential new transmission sources. We could pick up changing symptom profiles, for example. And so with that, we are still in the middle of our last cohort, which started August 2nd. But we're seeing some really interesting things. Uh, We're definitely starting to see the impact 
of the pandemic on people from a mental health perspective. And so unfortunately, we're seeing an increase in alcohol or drug abuse. So we're seeing about 10%. The participants in this last cohort are saying that they've been actively using alcohol or drugs to cope with the stress of the pandemic. So we're sad to see see that. Uh, We're also seeing about 32% of people that have tested positive at this point are still reporting long-lasting symptoms. So those could be um, what they're calling a brain fog or just having a hard time remembering things or participating in everyday activities. We're seeing persistent respiratory issues in these people. So long-term coughing, um, respiratory distress, so indicative of potential scarring in the lungs from their infection. And then we're also seeing people saying that they're still having a loss of taste or smell or distorted taste and smell several months after infection. Um, So that's been pretty interesting. And then the last kind of part of what we've added in the last two cohorts was looking at parents in particular. So DHEC's been really interested, you know, once we were able to get the vaccines rolled out, we wanted to focus on kids because they're ultimately our most vulnerable group at this point. And so since August, we're having about 34% of parents said that they have a child at home that's been exposed, either at school, daycare, or an after-school activity. And then overall, 19% of kids have tested positive. So that means of the kids that have been exposed, over half of them will go on to test positive. So that's very concerning to us. Um, to see that such a high rate of transmission in kids, which obviously, you know, we are seeing statewide, but having this kind of more rigorous data um, helps inform us and um, have a better idea of what's going on in the situation. And, and keeping with those kids and that that number you're just talking about, 34% of parents saying a child has been exposed, 19% of the kids testing positive. Is that something that has grown more with this latest cohort because of the Delta variant? Or was that always something that was kind of trending upward regardless on your previous research? Oh, it has significantly increased. Mm. (laughs) And I think part of that, it's probably twofold, right? One of it is that last year around this time, we definitely saw kids probably being exposed and getting testing positive, but they weren't getting as sick as they are this year. The Delta variant creates a larger amount of virus in your body And the more virus you have, the more symptoms you're going to have. So, you know, on one hand, you know, I'm a mom myself, so I can tell you my son has been sick so much from daycare. That's just a normal part of life. Mm -hmm. But, you know, for his particular COVID infection, he was significantly sicker than he's ever been from the other stuff he's gotten before and just kind of regular day to day. And so it's possible that the reason we are seeing so many kids testing positive now could be because they're getting sicker, so we're thinking to get them tested, whereas last year, it's possible that the kids were still getting infected from their activities, but maybe not getting as sick, so then not getting tested. It's, mm-hmm. it's hard to say. That's uh, still kind of terrifying, just talking about your your son, you know, him being sicker than normal. Uh, how did you cope with that? How did you deal with that? I mean, it's kind of, it must be terrifying. Yeah, I cried. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, that's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I um, it's absolutely terrifying. You know, he has some high-risk conditions, too, so we were particularly scared and concerned. And then I also had to realize the fact that, you know, I am a faculty member. I still have to teach. I still have to do my job. And so trying to juggle all of that. So I'm very sympathetic to the other parents that are at home trying to cope with this as well. And um, I would just say to you, you know, you know, be aware of what the kind of risk signs are for if you would need to take them to the doctor. Certainly encourage any parent to talk to their pediatrician, just if they have any suspicion 
And then other than that, just give yourself some grace because mm-hmm. it's yeah. not easy, but you know, we'll get through it together. I mean, so does it, does it affect you? I mean, does it get you down maybe when you see this, this quality research that you've been doing uh, throughout this pandemic and then maybe it not being applied as well to shift some policies or practices? I mean, what's your take when you see, you know, this quality data and people kind of turn their noses up to it or just not even really paying attention to it and applying it in a way that could save lives? You know, I've actually been very pleasantly surprised. We've seen an increase in vaccinations lately, and I think the Delta variant has a lot to do with that. We've also seen a lot of parents get vaccinated that previously weren't. And I think part of that is I think parents are concerned, you know, maybe they don't want to vaccinate their kid if they have someone over 12, but they realize that they can't be sick and their child. So it's getting them, you know, to at least consider. So I think that's been a positive aspect. With this project, it is ultimately overseen by DHEC. So everything we do is shared with the executive leadership team. And we've seen some positive reallocating of resources to kind of strategically address some of the barriers we've seen. Um, And part of that, we are now starting a new two-year project that I'm really excited about that's focused on health disparities in COVID-19 and hoping the information we gain from that can be used not just for the current pandemic, but for others. And then even other chronic health or public health initiatives um, that I'd like to see happen. We, we know that, you know, there's been underserved populations throughout this entire pandemic. Do you think that anything's been improving as this pandemic has gone on? Do you, has research borne out anything in, or, or is it just really kind of reinforcing uh, underserved and underrepresented communities being hit hardest by this? Yeah, I've definitely seen more um, reach out to the rural populations and to our minority populations. I think the vaccine clinics that we're seeing on site at different organizations has been a positive response to that. So acknowledging that, you know, if you're someone that is working two jobs, maybe it is harder for you to go get vaccinated during a normal nine to five. Um, I've also seen, you know, at bus stops and at homeless shelters, they've set up permanent testing sites. So really, I think DHEC's done a great job of trying to get out to the people and to service everyone. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Nolan, kind of going back to what you were talking about, your research, you know, uh, you know, these, these people with these long, long haul conditions and, uh, you know, you know, cough and brain fog you were talking about, are those from severe infections you've been finding or could that be just even from mild infections? I mean, what's, how's that kind of track? So we're seeing it from a variety of initial clinical disease. Certainly the people that were more severely infected that were hospitalized for a long duration of time are more likely you know, just from a biological plausibility perspective to have symptoms. But yeah, absolutely. We're seeing people that have um, even mild illness can have long-term effects. And some of that is probably just underlying host genetics, which is something that, you know, I'd love to see more research on. So understanding of those that get infected, what is your underlying reasons for having you know, a different immune response or making you more likely to develop long-term severe disease? What are some maybe regular myths that you find yourself constantly debunking when talking to you know, either students or just random people on the street or family? What, what, what are people kind of confused about that you have to kind of correct them and say, no, this is actually what it is versus what you think it is? Um, you know, one of the biggest things that we hear about, um, I've worked with a lot of our student populations on campus and answering their questions about the vaccine, is the concern about if you get vaccinated, it would make you infertile. Mm-hmm. There's absolutely no truth to that. Um, it's based on the aspect that one of the proteins in their has to do with a protein that's developed during pregnancy and in your placental growth, but we don't see any connection in that way. So that's, I think, important to get out there for young persons that might be concerned. Um, the vaccine should not impact your ability to have a baby 
long term. And do you think that's is that a common like misnomer too? I feel like anytime there's a vaccine or they're trying to do some sort of vaccination, people think that that's going to be a problem. It seems like is that like historically something that always kind of crops up when we're talking about vaccines, new vaccines especially. Well, you know what's fascinating about this pandemic compared to others in the vaccine is that this is the first time we've utilized mRNA vaccines. So this technology has actually been around for almost two decades. So it's not new, the concept. It's just this is the first time we've seen one rolled out for a large-scale vaccination program. And so with that, because it's kind of a new technology, so it's different from the vaccine types that we give our kids or for flu, for example. So I think with that, inherently, people are just a little bit skeptical naturally because we don't have the ability to look at, you know, decades of data. Uh, But again, I would say this technology has been around for a long time and it's not necessarily new or novel. Yeah, there's just a bunch of, you know, billions of dollars was thrown into it, you know, to help get us to the point where we are right now. And I guess some people think that's, you know, worrisome, but at the same time, we're talking about two decades of research leading up to this point, and then just catalyzed by having billions of dollars thrown at it. And now millions of hundreds of millions of people have been vaccinated and showing that they're, they're fine, they're, they're living, they're, they're beating this virus. Absolutely. I think another vaccine concern I've heard is, how are we able to create this so quickly? Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, one, certainly billions of dollars. But if you actually look at the H1N1 vaccine, influenza vaccine, it came out within six months of the first cases. And with ours, it took longer than six months. So it's it's not unusual to see something make such quick progress. Yeah. And no one was uh, really too concerned about that at the time. They were just happy that we had something too. Um, right. And then just maybe leave us on a positive note. I mean, you look at viruses, you look at diseases all the time. What, what's going to be happening in, in the future in your idea? Like, you know, historically, what do you think, what can we look forward to this eventually, hopefully becoming more controlled and and maybe dying out, or what? What do you What are you hopeful for in the future? <laughs> Positive note. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> I do think you know, regardless of how you feel on this issue, I do think climate change is impacting the potential for pandemics. I think mm. people are moving into a lot of these are all zoonotic in nature, honestly. So we have sylvatic animals, those, you know, wild animals that have these diseases that circulate in their populations. And as people somewhat because of climate change are forced to go into new environments, they're interacting with those wildlife species. And so that creates these spillover events. So I think that's going to continue to happen. So that risk is there. I think people are going to continue to travel. I mean, we saw that Americans love to travel. Um, So it's always going to be there. I think a positive thing is that we now know masks work. And I do think a portion of the population is going to continue to use those during respiratory seasons, even when the pandemic's not here. And hopefully that will help. Um, I think the pandemic has also really brought people together in the sense that, you know, when we were all at home quarantined, it really, I've never heard any parents say they hated that. You know, I've never heard any people say they hated the ability to have time to call their friends and loved ones and have honest conversations and to have that time. I think that's the positive note, right? If we have to look at this, it's really shown us what's important to us individually and helped bring us together. Yeah, some realism right there and some positivity. And before we close out, I just want to ask you again, kind of circling back to what you just talked about masks, and I know you've been talking about them a lot too. Can you give us some research? Can you kind of tell us tell folks who may be skeptical about it or people who are on the fence about it or who keep, you know, going back and forth about whether they work or not, anything definitive that you can point to or anything that, you know, is is proven to help limit the spread of this virus? 
Yeah, we know masks absolutely work and they work in two ways. One, if you're infected and you're coughing, it's a physical barrier to prevent transmission to others. But same thing, it also prevents if you're around other people that are coughing or potentially spreading it, it helps lower the number of viral particles that would come into your immediate area. Um, I know it's become, you know, a little bit of a political hot button issue and I think trying to be delicate to people's concerns, it's absolutely valid. You know, people are right have the right to feel however they want. Um, but I would hope that we could all really come together on this for the kids more yeah. than anything else, right? We know that kids are the most vulnerable group right now. And so if we can create a masked environment, at least for the kids, to give them a fighting chance. Because, you know, unfortunately, we are seeing our PICUs are overwhelmed. Uh, we've had to close surgery centers to divert all the nurses to the pediatric units. And so uh, the research shows, and even just public health, you know, the resulting of the policies from last year, as soon as the mask came off this summer, we saw this resurgence, not just of COVID, but of RSV, of flu, of all these diseases that we don't typically see in the summer. Um, so that to me, I think is just a natural experiment that showed the impact of those policies of masking and the benefit. Well, Dr. Melissa Nolan, thank you so much for uh, talking to us, giving us some insight and for doing your research. It's so important now more than ever. My pleasure. Thank you, Gavin. Thanks again to Dr. Melissa Nolan, who is a professor of epidemiology at the University of South Carolina Arnold School of Public Health and is the co-lead for the Strong Research Project. And thank you for listening to the pod. You can show us your appreciation by leaving us a review or voicemail at 803-563-7169. You can stay up to date with the latest news on SCETV.org and SouthCarolinaPublicRadio.org. And don't forget to support your local newspapers. For the South Carolina lead, I'm Gavin Jackson. Be well, South Carolina. South Carolina.